This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 102. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 102 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio Focal Monitors and Audio Technica. Great to be back with you again. We are now in the 100s doing the show. And uh, if you are new to the show and you've never heard the show before, well, I certainly encourage you to go back all the way back to number one and take a listen and see what the story is. You know, there's a hundred shows that you can go through there, of course. I'm stepping out of the studio and sitting in my living room once again with Moto the Bulldog here snoring in the background, coffee at my side, and a laptop on my lap because it's a laptop, right? So anyways, I got a, a great show for you today. I've got Frank McDonough from McDonough Management on. This is the first guest I've had who is a manager of producers and engineers. And managers for producers and engineers are always an interesting conversation. It's the one kind of mysterious thing for a lot of people. They always, you know, you always hear people say, well, if I had a manager to, you know, run my career as a producer and engineer, then, you know, everything would be fantastic. Well, not always the case, but uh, Frank is here to dispel a lot of those myths. And somebody heard me mention him on my show. He's come up quite a bit, actually, in the past, but somebody heard me mention him, and uh, he actually reached out to me, which was really great. So I jumped at the chance to have him on the show. And just so you know, he manages Joe Barisi, Ross Hogarth, Rob Schnaff, Andrew Sheps, Matt Wallace, uh, all who have been on the show. He also manages Mike Klink, David Bianco, uh, John Fields, Matt Hyde, a whole group of guys. So uh, looking forward to have Frank on the show, so... That's it. Frank McDonough coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's look ahead a little bit. Uh, let's look at NAM. So NAM 2017, I will be there. I haven't bought the plane ticket. I haven't booked the hotel, but I swear I'll be there. Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the dates on that that you need to be aware of in case you want to be part of the deal. Let's see. We're looking at January 19th through the 22nd. So that's in Anaheim, California. So if you're going to be there, uh, I will be there, most likely at the Focal booth, as I am usually. But uh, we'll see if we'll see if there's any other developments. See if there's any bigger involvement. But other than that, yeah, we usually we usually plant our feet there at the Focal booth. So hey, there's a great show that you got to check out. It's called Sound Breaking Stories from the Cutting Edge of Recorded Music. And I think if you listen to this show, I think you'll certainly enjoy this. It's a show on PBS, and it. It basically dives into the different aspects of uh, recorded music through history. I've only managed to catch the first part of the first half of part one. And just by cruising around on the television over um, Thanksgiving break, uh, I caught uh, episode six or seven, I think it was. Anyways, really interesting show. You got to check it out. I don't want to tell you too much. Looks like uh, Sir George Martin was involved uh, before he died. It's completely fascinating. Delves deep into the world of recording and takes you through the different uh, generations. Uh, the one I happened to catch was dealing in music videos and what came before MTV and during MTV and all that was happening at that time. Super interesting. So check it out. Look it up, soundbreaking.com. I think all of you will enjoy it. I know I'm not telling you very much, but I want you to check it out on your own and uh, enjoy it. So 
check that out. And I know I harp on it a lot, uh, the concept of backing up. And I know I mentioned Backblaze all the time, which, of course, we have an affiliate link there on the uh, Working Class Audio page. But it just really hit home over the um, Thanksgiving break, as I mentioned I was on earlier. I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he does a lot of uh, pretty heavy video work. And I was asking him, I said, well, you know, what do, what do you guys have to back all that stuff up? And he said, oh, you know, we got a couple raids, and, you know, they're local on-site raids. And I said, well, what are you going to do if that stuff goes down? What do, you, what do you do if there's a fire or flood or tornado? Because he lives in Colorado. He said, you know we would be screwed. And I said, you know, Dave, to my brother-in-law, I said, Dave, you guys got to get a cloud backup thing going. And I said, let me turn you on to this Backblaze thing. Told them all about it, explained they had, you know, one for personal use and one for business use. It's it's pretty economical, I got to say. So I'm going to encourage you all once again, I'll just be, you know, the person that harps on you. And I don't care if you go through our affiliate link or if you go directly to them and not go through the affiliate link. Bottom line is, and, and you don't even have to go to Backblaze because there are other choices. You can go to, I think, Carbonite. You can go to um, Crash Plan. I've mentioned Crash Plan. I used to use Crash Plan pretty often. It's also good. Get yourself some kind of cloud backup thing to complement your on-site backup. Uh, you want to have three copies, essentially. And, you know, if you lose one, then you, you have two others. So just want to really encourage that. I, you never know what's going to happen with the projects that you work on. Because if you work on something and you think, oh, I'll never hear from them again, well, that's when they're going to call you. And that's when they're going to say, hey, you know that project we did? Could we get some stems or some instrumental versions? Or, gee, uh, can we, you know, looks like one of the files you sent us was uh, cut off at the end. That happened to me recently on a uh, voiceover session. And fortunately, I had all of that backed up, covered. So I was able to access it and cover my butt there. So, so that's my riding your ass for the show for today. Get your stuff backed up. Do a cloud backup thing. Do a local on-site thing and do, you know, a third thing. I've mentioned it before. I do two RAID systems here at my house. One of those is backed up to Backblaze. 24-7, seven days a week, it's always backing up. So I have this peace of mind that I'm covered. So there you go. Well, let's get into it here with our guest, Mr. Frank McDonough, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being on the show. This is a first you're the first manager of producers, engineers to be on the show. And one of the reasons why I've been angling to get you on is that the world of management for people in this business, to many, including myself, is a big mystery. It's, um, it's filled, I think, with a lot of speculation. It's filled with a lot of people imposing their own ideas of, well, if I only had a manager, this would happen. And so having you on the show will help dispel a lot of myths and maybe just give your own insight as to how, not only how it works, but, you know, your approach specifically. Okay. So give me a little bit about your background prior to getting into the management of, of producers, engineers. Uh, all right. I'll give my life story in 90 <laughs> seconds. I uh, grew up in St. Louis, was in bands there, wanted nothing more than to be a rock star. My dad wanted me to go to college, suggested that I could go to college in LA. So I took, took, the, uh, took him up on that offer, uh, spent four years in LA going to school, which was really just a cover for me trying to you know, become a rock star, I, you know, played in different bands. I played on the Sunset Strip. I played at Gazari's and wrong place, wrong time, you know, not good enough, all those things. So I got out, I did, I got a real job 
for a few years, which was, I thought it would just be a matter of time, but eventually I realized that working for a living might not be as temporary as I thought. And uh, I started cold calling record companies and I got, I got a job doing A&R admin at Arista Records. One of the reasons I got that job was because I was familiar with computers and spreadsheets. Like, and it was, that was relatively new at the time, which gives you an idea of how long ago that was. <laughs> uh, and so I did that for four years and was not enthralled with working at a record company. And uh, I got a, a call from a guy named Jim Phelan was managing record producers. And I thought, well, maybe this is the ticket. Um, I worked for him for a couple of years, at which point he decided he wanted to be an A&R guy. And he went to become head of A&R on the East Coast for A&M Records. Uh, so me and a lot of those clients went over to work uh, with Steve Moyer. Um, that was a deal that Jim Phelan set up. I was over there for some years, at which point I, I just decided I could do it on my own. So I made that move back in 2000 and hmm. been trudging along ever since. Interesting. What uh, what year was the whole Arista thing happening for you? I think that was uh, 88 in that in that time frame. And you say you were familiar with computers and spreadsheets. So where, where did that... I'm curious, in 1988, where did that uh, computer knowledge come from? Because... You were fairly young at that point, I would assume. I actually had an Atari computer to do to do music. I was using it for sequencing and stuff like that. Uh, the real job I got when I got out of school was at Hughes Aircraft, which I'm less embarrassed to tell people about since Howard Benson has uh, gone public about having worked in aerospace for some years before he became a record producer. <laughs> um, yeah, so I worked at Hughes Aircraft in another aerospace company for a few years and you know learned how to use computer, you know, computers for business stuff there. There's a few people in the record industry. I, uh, what's his name from uh, the Doobie Brothers uh, has some ties to rocket science or, or I'm trying to remember. Is that Skunk Baxter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I've read that. It's a, that that's that's always an interesting thing. Uh, I have a friend who uh, he's he's a producer, engineer, drummer out here in the Bay Area. He used to his first job out of college, I think, was building bombs at Lawrence Livermore Labs, and he just became disillusioned with that and bailed and started getting into drumming and, and music making and eventually recording. So interesting path. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about, let's jump right into it, the management of producers and engineers. Tell me about your business. What's your day-to-day -day like? It's, it's all over the place, but, uh, but I would, you know, to kind of give a, a, more, a global picture of it, uh, I'd say it breaks down into a few parts. You know, there's one part is marketing, kind of getting the word out on what guys have done. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the most important part. Another part is administration, whether it's, you know, billing or, or kind of getting contracts signed or any of that. And the other part is, for lack of a better word, counseling. This is a, an emotional roller coaster, even at the best of times. And sometimes it talks, it helps to talk to someone who has seen other people go through it and has some perspective on, you know, what someone might be dealing with. So mm -hmm. I would say those are kind of the three main areas. And on any given day, it might be, you know, a lot of administration, none of the other stuff. It might be a lot of counseling and none of the other stuff, or it might be a lot of marketing, but it, it varies from day to day. Is this a job that one could do from anywhere or is it, you have to be there on the front lines in LA? Yeah, I, I think it's a job you could probably do 
anywhere. I'm not sure that being here is that advantageous, though it is nice to, you know, get together and see people face to face. I mean, I, I don't make a point of, you know, going to A&R people's offices and, and saying, what you got, what you got, you know, I mean, I, I find that's not that constructive. That's my own personal feeling about it. Other managers have different outlooks on that. Does a manager, or at least do you actively try to seek out work for your clients? And how do you, and if so, how do you do that? First of all, I think it's technically illegal for managers to seek work for their clients. Mm. Um, there's a, I can't remember what law it is, but in California, managers can't solicit work for their clients. But what I do is make sure that people are aware of the successes that my clients are having. And to the extent that that makes them want to work with them on other projects, then that, you know, that tends to work out, you know, it tends to, one thing tends to lead to another there. So, and I do that through personal emails to people, personal phone calls to people, you know, uh, I send out a newsletter, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and I started a YouTube channel, you know, I, I try to make sure it's as easy to find out about, you know, I've got web pages and try to make sure it's as easy to find it. If you want to find out about Rob Schnaff or, or Andrew Sheps or Joe Barisi, that the information's there, you know, and that I, I'm very accessible if you have a question or if one of my clients says, hey, I'd really like to work with this band, I'll find out who the manager is and say, hey, my guy, you know, loves your band, would love to be involved or love to work with them if there's some opportunity in the future. I mean, I don't think that's finding work. It's working with the, the clients to kind of find opportunities. You're what I think Malcolm Gladwell calls a connector. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, basically taking, you know, circles, your circles and trying to connect other circles to that. Let me, let me kind of expand upon it a little bit because there's, I think, a common misconception that once you have a, a hit record that, you know, all the doors will open and shit will just start happening for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had a couple experiences that, that really underscored just how much people kind of need to be reminded at the right time of what you've done. So a, a good example is years ago, I represented Mike Shipley, who mixed the Shania Twain record, which couldn't have been bigger. I mean, it was all over the radio. It was all over, you know, the trades, um, you know, there were trade ads saying mixed by Mike Shipley. I was sending out newsletters, emails to all the A&R people I know saying, hey, Mike Shipley just mixed this song, it's number one, it's the HR pop, whatever. Um, and I got a call one day from an A&R person who, she was looking for a mixer. She was asking about somebody else. That other person was on a long-term project, not available. But I said, you know, who'd be perfect for this is Shipley. I said, you know, I'm having lunch next to your office tomorrow. I'll swing by afterwards. I'll drop off a reel, we can chat. So I got to her office and I handed her, back then I was burning CDs of the stuff that people had done. And she turned it over. She goes, oh, I didn't know Mike Shipley mixed Shania Twain. What was ironic about it is that she worked at Mercury Records, which is the, which is the home of Shania Twain. So it kind of doesn't matter how, how big you know, a record is. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to remember at an opportune time. And I had another very similar experience. I was having dinner with a manager. Uh, he worked at the firm at you know, the height of that company's success. And I only say that because it wasn't like he was working in some backwoods office and was out of the loop. He was very much in the loop. It was towards the end of the year. I said, well, 
thanks to your band and Maroon 5. It's been a really good year. He goes, Maroon 5? I said, yeah, Matt Wallace produced that record. And he couldn't believe it because he knew Matt Wallace. He kept in touch with Matt Wallace. He was kind of friends with Matt Wallace. And he had no idea that Matt Wallace made that record. Um, And so I think that that kind of illustrated to me like just how important it is for people to be reminded at an opportune time like of what someone's done. Uh, because we can't keep that stuff in our heads. And I, I'm as guilty of that as anyone else. I mean, like I saw the interview Gil Norton, and I often use Gil Norton as a uh, as uh, an example, because I'm a fan of the Foo Fighters records he made. I know some of the other records he made, but I can't keep it in my head. I can't remember what he's done. You know, I mean, like, so I, I th- say to people who are in this business, maybe who are producers, like have you said, have you heard of Gil Norton? They go, yeah. I said, name three things he's done. And people usually can't, you know, they can't name three things. And he's done a lot more than three things. Yeah. And people who do know of Gil generally associate him with the Pixies and um, Echo and the Bunnymen. But it's hard for any of us to keep that, you know, much of it in our heads, you know. It's like sports. It's like, you know, I'm not a sports fan. Sports is not my thing. I know producers, music probably more producers than I do music, but yeah, I'm with you. I can't keep any of that sports stuff in my head. I know who the major teams are and that's about it. And then, you know, somebody says, you know, well, who produced, you know, such and such record. I can probably have a better, higher probability of naming that. Let me just kind of expand on this thing just a little bit more. Please Um, do. In, in, insofar as uh, like how this, I just kind of want to emphasize that, that my main, I don't want to say technique, but uh, but the, the thing that I do mostly is remind people of shit they kind of already know. Um, so, you know, I'll let someone know at an opportune time, you know, that this guy produced this record, which is similar to this band that they're working with. But it tends not to be, I can go, I'd probably go so far as to say, it's never, a con- my conversations never go like this. Like, okay, I got this guy. He's really good. You don't know any of the bands he's worked with, but trust me, he's really good. That's that that's never worked for me. I mean, I, I don't know if other guys are successful with that technique, but for me, it's a, it's a matter of kind of reminding people of things that they already know. Like, oh yeah, like Maroon Five, that he'd be perfect for this. You know, it's not like what band, who, what's his name. You know, it's that's kind of the the gist of the gig. I think, which 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 also explains why I don't think it's particularly advantageous for people who don't have anything noteworthy on their discography to hook up with a manager. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, so if you come to me and you've done a lot of bands that no one has heard of, what can I say to an A and R person? You know, or or a, a manager to persuade them? Is it, because to be honest with you, the my gig, it's not about my salesmanship. It's about what these guys have done. And to the extent that these guys have done work that people love, all I have to do is facilitate it, you know, um, and not screw it up. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, though. It's a chicken, chicken or the egg kind of deal because you can't really expect a manager to take what you have and run with it unless you have something. But to get something of a certain level or caliber... Yes takes a special set of circumstances and, and happenstance really to, to, right. to make it, to make that all those pieces of the puzzle connect. Right. And look, I, I'm, I'm completely aware of the catch 22 nature of that I'm very sympathetic to it, but I'm also very aware of my own limitations and I, I, yeah. I can't, I don't, I can't, I can't 
suggest to someone, I, I, look, when, I've been doing this a long time and I was certainly a lot more idealistic, you know, 15 years ago. And, and there was times when I'd be like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. You know, I, I, if I just get this music that this guy's produced in front of enough people, someone's going to hire him. And what I learned a long time ago is that a lot of those decision makers, you know, make their decisions with their eyes, not with their ears. And so if they see a list of bands they've never heard of, they're not interested. And I, I, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's the way it is. You know? Yeah. Um, so if I'm effectively, if what I am as a salesman, you know, it's futile for me to sell, try to sell things that people don't want. So yeah. my job is to sell stuff that people want, you know, and to try to make that as attractive as possible to them. When you're making your decision about who to reach out to, like, what's the criteria? Do you, you to say, like, reach out to Andrew or Joe or, or anybody for that matter? Like, what's that process? Uh, to to you, bring somebody into your roster. I think mostly that people have reached out to me to the extent that I feel like I can help them. I get involved and to the extent that I don't feel like I can help them or that we're kind of on different pages or, or I don't understand the world that they, I mean, a lot of people have said you should get in hip hop. That's where the money is. And I know there's a lot more money in hip hop, but I, I you know, I'm an old white guy. I don't understand. I love R and B, but I don't understand hip hop. I don't, so I'd be the wrong guy to to be involved in that. I think. So to be honest with you, I've I've have a relatively static set of clients, and my focus isn't on getting more clients. My my focus is to maximize the opportunities available to the people I already represent. Mm. Uh, bring bringing on new clients is not is way down on my list of priorities. How does a manager make a consistent living? when say the record industry's budgets are falling at a rapid pace. So you only have so many clients. So how does right. that work? I don't know that, that we can make a consistent living, you know, um, my, my fortunes rise and fall with my clients. And so I'm, I'm in the same boat that they're in. If they're not so working, I'm, you're not working. Right. Yeah. So, well, no, if they're, if, if they're not working, I'm not getting paid, but if they're not working, I, I'm, I'm actually working double time, you know, <laughs> to try to get them work. Right. <laughs> right, right. Of right, course. Right. Like to figure out what we need to be doing differently. And, I, and I'll tell you that the business has changed. Well, it's not even, it's not the business has changed. It's, it's just the world has changed so much. I mean, 15 or so years ago, uh, is it 15 years ago? Wow. It's probably closer to 20 years ago. I started using email. Um, and it was relatively new, and I'd send out an email to a bunch of A and R people, and it'd be like, "Ooh, I got an email." I mean, now I get, you know, we all get like an email every day from Whole Foods and from Best Buy, and from like you get, you know, hundreds of emails a day, and like so. Now it's a matter of like, how do you not get lost in the noise? And it's it's hard. I, I, I don't know the answer um, to that. I'm trying new things all the time just to try to stay, you know, try not to get lost in the barrage of emails. How big is your roster? 16 guys. Okay. As far as to the best of your knowledge, are there a, a, a large amount of managers doing exactly what you're doing in Los Angeles? Or is it just a handful of folks? Uh, I think it's a handful, but I do find that it seems like more people are getting into it. Like there was a time when Universal Music, you know, had a had a producer management division that lasted a couple years. Um, there's some artist management companies who are getting into it. You know, I don't know. I, I suppose from the outside, it looks like easy money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm amused, particularly when artist managers get involved in it, because with producer management, there's there's really a limited number of income streams. There's upfront fees and there's royalties. You know, I mean, we don't go on tour, we don't sell T-shirts, we don't have personal appearances, we don't have corporate gigs. I mean, it's really a, a you know a very narrow and specific thing. It surprises me with someone who represents artists particularly big artists who go on tour and make lots of money and that that an artist manager manager would be interested in working with producers but maybe they do it just because they like that part of the business i don't know is the future of the business uh with regards to royalties in jeopardy at all do you see that large record companies are continuing to shrink that's my perception that's the the narrative i've built up in my own head but is that true yeah i think i think it is I mean, the royalty streams are definitely shrinking. It would be great to turn back the clock and have been born 20 years earlier or something. <laughs> but it's just, it's just kind of the way it is. And I'm not really sure there's a whole lot that someone in my position or a producer's position can do a whole lot about. As a, as a music lover, I love Spotify, um, use it all the time. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that model. I don't know if the the... Payments are right. I know that publishing people in particular have issues with Spotify and how the payouts work there. I think there's probably some adjustment to be done. But uh, I mean, the way I always looked at Spotify was that if you could get more people paying 10 bucks a month for music, that's got to be a good thing, you know, because I, I don't know that even at the height of the CD craze that that many people were spending 10 bucks a month on CDs. So if you can somehow get people excited about music again. The subscription-based thing has is, is always fascinated me because I was an early lover of Netflix. Right. And I always kind of think, why, why hasn't somebody like Netflix, who has pretty much mastered the, the, the subscription model for movies, why, why don't they get involved in, in music subscription? But they, they, they kind of just stay on, on course. Right, right. But it's the same concept. I mean, it, it, what's funny about it is that, you know, Netflix had hard costs. They actually had to mail you the DVD and they paid the postage both ways and they had to buy the DVD in the first place and they had to replace damaged DVDs. The, you know, Spotify has a, you know, it's all digital. I mean, I think it's a great model. Uh, you know, there's, a, I know there's a lot of, you know, negative feelings towards Spotify. And again, I don't know that the, the amount of money that people get paid is the right amount of money. Certainly, it doesn't seem like the right amount of money if you compare it to the amount of money someone gets for a digital download for, off iTunes. But mm -hmm. I think the numbers work out to if you listen if you listen to a song 150 times, it is the equivalent of the, the artist gets the equivalent of if you had purchased the song on iTunes. Mm -hmm. So if you listen to a song once and decide you don't ever want to hear that song again then that artist is not going to get much money. If you listen to a song every day and that song changes your life, that's a, that artist is going to get a lot more money than if you had even downloaded that song from iTunes. Um, so in a way, I mean, I think there's a certain equity in it that the people who you love and listen to a lot get more money than people who you don't listen to very much. But what it does do away with is the huge opening week numbers, you know, uh, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get all your money up front as you would with CD sales. You know, you sell 
a million CDs in the first week, you get all your money up front. So... Hope you're enjoying my interview here with Mr. Frank McDonough here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to take a sponsor break here with Audio-Technica and remind you that, uh, you know, as the holiday season is approaching, maybe you're giving a gift for one of your buddies, one of your friends, spouse possibly, or maybe you're just buying yourself a gift. So obviously you want to think about uh, what Audio-Technica offers. Maybe you need a new pair of headphones. I'll tell you, my 10-year-old was using a set of these old Sonys I bought for like $17, I think six, six plus years ago maybe even longer than that. He'd been using them and using them and using them. He finally broke them. One of the channels went out and it's just one of those kind of pairs of headphones that is just not repairable. You know, it's one of those that unfortunately is somewhat disposable. So he said, I need a new pair of headphones. And I said, well, try these. Mistakenly giving him my ATH M40Xs to try, immediately he held on to them and said, oh, I love these headphones and didn't want to give them back. So now I have to buy a present for him in the form of the M40Xs, you know, and the good thing is, of course, you have the connector that disconnects, so you can switch between the straight, long straight cord or the short coily cord, and, you know, the headphones are built tough, so they're going to last a lot longer than his last headphones. That's going to be on his list for Christmas is the ATH M40Xs, but they got a bunch of other stuff, as you know, turntables, microphones, so make sure if, you, if you're looking for something new for yourself, for someone else, Maybe you're getting into vinyl and you want to check out some of their turntables. They certainly have all of that. So head on over to audio-technica.com and check it out. Give somebody something audio related for the holidays. That's always fun, including giving yourself something. Let's get back into it with Frank McDonough here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You know, back to producers and engineers, it seems that the, the models for making money for producers and engineers is being complemented by the education of how to make records. We are, of course, inundated with, you know, YouTube videos. And of course we have things like Mix With The Masters, which many of your clients participate in. It seems that monetizing the education aspect and teaching others seems to be one way that many are trying to capitalize on their, their, their skills that they've developed that don't get fully utilized throughout the year because there's just not as many records available for them to work on. Is, would you, th you think that's, that's accurate? I know a lot of people do that. I, I'm not personally a fan of that, partly because that if you're, if there's not enough work out there for you, why encourage a whole crop of other people to get in the business? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, and I should qualify that by saying, look, I mean, some of my guys, you know, are involved mixed with the masters. They have, or they have their own programs. Garth Richardson has a school in Vancouver to the extent that, that it serves their passion and their interests. You know, um, some guys are actually really interested in teaching and you know, there's people are coming up as producers anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, people want, want to learn the stuff. So to the, to the extent that you can provide that service, then great. Uh, it just not, hasn't been a particularly big interest of mine, partly because that's not why I got in the music business. I got in the music business because I love records. Maybe I'm being short-sighted by not, you know, opening up, you know, my own version of Full sale with all these amazing uh, guys I work with. But um, it's just, 
it's again, it's not my passion. Well, and I know that Joe does a, a workshop yep. every once in a while, which I've had friends go to that rave about it, about how much they learn. Uh, and then mixed with the masters, I think seems to be the predominant thing. Uh, and, and of course there's, you know, the, the video subscription things, there's like, you know, pure mix of course, right. which Andrew has done. It's interesting. So, so you're not actively really looking for diversification for your clients with regards to that. You're, you're more trying to continue to facilitate the making of, of records, right. which is why they got into it. Exactly. And, and, and for a lot of them, I mean, uh, I've heard great things about Joe's uh, workshops too, but for a lot of them, it's not really in their skill set, you know? Um, so I, I, I'm a big fan of like focusing on what you're good at, you know, and figuring out a way to make that work. What is your advice to up and coming producers and engineers that want to be in the position of your clients? What would you tell them? I would tell them there's four ways to become a successful producer. <laughs> One is the Nigel Godrich way, which is to work at a studio. Um, he started, and this, this is an article in Rolling Stone. It basically was, it was like nine easy steps to becoming Nigel Godrich. Started, started off as a T-boy, became like an assistant engineer, you know, uh, assisted on a Radiohead record, uh, engineered a Radiohead record, and then the Radiohead producer quit, and he's producer Radiohead. So, so that's one way. <laughs> Easy, right? Right. Oh, sure. Uh, another way is uh, to become a rock star, like Rick Ocasek. You know, start your band, become fabulously successful there, and then people will let you make records. So there's uh, so there's Rick Ocasek, there's uh, Todd Rundgren, the guys from Stone Temple Pilots who producing records for a while. So that's one easy way, become a rock star first. Oh, also very easy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, another easy way is become incredibly in-demand songwriter, and then you can insist that you get to produce the record. So that's the Dr. Luke way. I, I mean, I think his entree, I mean, I know he's a musician and was associated with Max Martin, but I think... He his main forte was uh, as a songwriter, and I'm sure someone will correct me on that. And then the last way is uh, to develop artists, and that's the Eric Valentine model. Work, you know, he was worked with an unsigned band called Third Eye Blind. They got a, a deal and kept him on as producer for the record. That was, and then he went back to his his studio and started working with another unsigned band called Smash Mouth and that blew up, you know? So that's how you become Eric Valentine. But those are the four ways that I know of, you know? Most of my guys have come up through the ranks of, uh, you know, of working in a studio and, and one thing leads to another and, you know, you get a, a break. Uh, and unfortunately, that's this, that studio path is less viable than it used to be just because studios are fewer than there used to be. And, Therefore, it's more competitive to, to get a job assisting in a studio these days. But those are the only four ways I, I know. I, I don't know of any big producer who, you know, got out of, you know, full sale, signed on with a manager, and the manager made shit happen for him. So <laughs> once again, it's back to the chicken and the egg thing. You have to have something for someone to manage. I think once again, like I, I talked to so many people who are just like, man, I just need a manager and that that'll just make my life so much yeah. better. Well, what, what, what I say to people, I mean, cause look, I talk to a lot of people who are looking for advice. I'm happy to talk to people. I tell, I mean, the re <laughs> I've had this particular conversation, you know, with lots and lots of people. And so what I tell them is like, look, 
let's say that you've got the ear of, you know, an important A&R person or a hundred A&R people. You've got 30 seconds. Quick. What do I tell them about you? And they go, uh, I've got Pro Tools 11. <laughs> like nobody, <laughs> nobody cares. Uh, I, I'm really good with artists. Like that's your opinion. Nobody cares. What do you got? Like, uh, and look, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the fact that it is hard to kind of get the ball rolling, but, but I, I think that in the early stages of someone's career, um, most of the good shit comes from word of mouth and is not coming through the kind of uh, other channels, but eventually you kind of get something connects with people and, and maybe you would benefit from, having someone kind of spreading the word about what you do. Uh, I mean, look, there's no, there's no rule that says you need a manager. You know, I mean, Rick Rubin, as far as I know, hasn't hadn't had a manager for many years and he's done just fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not a prerequisite to success. That's right. Because the truth of the matter is, is that there's uh, zillions of folks out there that are making records that they're happy with and they're making a living and, you know, you just do it on with a uh, on a different level. You handle a, a different level of of, of guys. Yeah, and and I, and I think that things operate a little differently. You know, I, I think there's a stage of someone's career where where things are word of mouth, and you know, uh, that's how you get your next gig, and you work with this band, and they refer another band, or. or but eventually people get to a point where something connects and then uh, they might benefit by having someone spread the word about what they're doing. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be a platinum record. It doesn't have to be a huge hit. It just has to be something that people care about. And can recognize, you know, right. if you, so it, there's almost, I would imagine there's almost like a, a civilian type test that if you, you go to a party and somebody says, oh yeah, my client works with these unknown bands, they don't really care. But if you say my client works with Green Day or Maroon 5. Right. It doesn't even have to be. It could be, you know, it could be Yola Tango. Those guys have a rabid fan base. It could be, you know, Bright Eyes. You know, it could be, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a multi-platinum band. It just has to be something that people are passionate about. Have you ever brought in somebody in your umbrella and it just didn't work out? Sure. And you just you had to let him go yeah. because for some reason or another it just didn't work out. Yes. I, I, you know, I made a mistake, uh, you know, and I shouldn't requalify it as a mistake, but I, but I learned through this one experience that, um, uh, just because someone has a platinum record, uh, doesn't mean that the world is going to be the path to the door. It turns out this particular platinum record with this particular band, everybody hated, you know, <laughs> like it, like, uh, unfortunately, for better, or for worse, as a producer, you are, you know, associated with the company you keep. So um, someone like Joe Barisi has done an amazing job of, I mean, he's got impeccable taste, you know, and he works with, you know, really well-respected bands. And consequently, he's very well-respected. But if you work with a band that other bands hate, even if they're, suc <laughs> if they're successful, it's hard to get... Uh, it's hard to get other artists interested. And I'll, get, I'll give you an example. I don't think Matt Wallace would mind me telling this. I mean, Matt Wallace did Faith No More, a bunch of records for them. And the world beat a path to his door. People love that band. People love those records. Matt's an amazing guy. And 
people really wanted to work with him. Then Matt Wallace produced Maroon 5's first record, which sold 10 million copies worldwide. And we definitely got offers, but it wasn't as intense as the offers that came in after Angel Dust. And the reason is this. I mean, how many bands out there want to work with a guy who worked with Faith No More? There's a lot of bands that fit that description. How many bands out there want to work with the guy who worked with Maroon 5? There's just fewer bands that fit that fit that model or fit that mold. So um, it's a, it's a, you're associated with the, the bands you work with. So if you work with, you know, uh, I, I used Rick O'Case as, as, as an example earlier, but Connor Oberst, whatever his name is, is probably a good example of someone who's in a band who's producing records because people think Bright Eyes is super cool. Um, and they didn't, and as far as I know, they never sold that many records, but they're a band that, you know, tastemakers love and, Interesting. Yeah, it's it can be um, be careful with who you work with, kind of a thing. You're going to get pigeonholed right. with that band. And I, I I don't know. I mean, to I don't know that you can foresee that. Um, like how the world is going to embrace how they're going to perceive you. You know, I know some bands who uh, are were surprised at, at how not cool they were perceived as. You know, like it's hard, it's hard to, you know, I'm sure that the guys in Hootie the Blowfish didn't think, you know, we're going to be a laughing stock, but we're going to sell 12 million records. You know, I mean, I'm sure that they did not want to, you know, or Nickelback. I'm sure those guys didn't want to be the, but like what, but you know, like, I don't know that you could have yeah. known that when you were making that first record, you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of unfair. Cause I mean, you, you know, the bands go in and do what they do and yeah. It is unfair. Who knows? Yeah, it is unfair. I, you know, I've I've always hated that about the music business. I mean, that people judge you on what kind of music you listen to. I have a really broad taste in music, and it goes all over the place. And a lot of the stuff that I listen to would be considered super uncool. But like, I don't listen to music to be cool. I don't listen to music to create an identity i listen to music because i like it you know this uh, this works for me like there's some radiohead stuff that that i really like there's some radiohead that i think is absolute shit i you know that's my own personal opinion i i don't listen to it to be cool <laughs> and there's an audience for every kind of music it, it yes it really yes. you know we you or i may not like it or right and or find it cool but you know somebody out there is buying you know those nickelback records right right um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I really, I really <laughs> don't. Uh, you know, there's some days I wonder like, wow, what would I do if I wasn't doing this? And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I've got no plan B. So I'm, this is what I'm doing for a while. And because look, I still love music. I like helping facilitate this uh, this work and it's what I'm interested in. I mean, I know other people have, uh, expanded into sports. Other people have expanded into other fields. I mean, for better, for worse, I'm kind of a one trick pony. So this is where I'm at. It's good though. I mean, you know what you like to do and you're doing it and obviously you're doing it well because your clients just keep coming up and mm. everywhere, or at least they're on my radar. Yeah, good. The future, as far as where you see things going, what are your thoughts? Do you have any musings on this? I don't think that the role of the record producer is ever going to, to go away. 
basically the, the business started going downhill in terms of overall money in early 2000s. And I'm, I'm not sure if we're at the bottom yet or whether there's a long way to go down. Or I, I don't know. I mean, and I'll reference something on your website. I looked at your website before we got on the call here and you said, everyone has access to the tools used to create amazing music from their bedroom. Um, and that's true. And Oh, you looked at my person, my production yeah, website. Yeah. Okay. So, and this reminds me, Joe Barisi one year gave me uh, Pro Tools. So, and that was amazing. And I fired that up. And the main thing I used it for was to was to listen to the uh, kind of bootleg multi tracks that are out there. You can listen yeah. to Marvin Gaye or whatever. It's amazing to hear how those records are put together. But I booted that up, and I thought, oh my god, I have the same software that these guys are using to make records. And, and then I thought to myself, that's as stupid as like firing up Microsoft Word and going, oh my God, this is the same <laughs> software that Stephen King writes his novels on. Like just, just because you have the software doesn't mean that you have the skill to use it um, or that, you know, not only the knowledge, but there's, there's an amount, there's a certain amount of talent to you know, in the same way that like you might have the skills to use Microsoft Word, but that doesn't mean you're going to be an amazing writer. Um, and you might have the skills to use Pro Tools, but that doesn't mean you're going to be an amazing producer or engineer or mixer. So uh, because of that, I think there's always going to be a place for for producers and engineers and mixers because it's hard enough to be an artist now. I mean, it's it's harder now, I think, to be an artist than it used to be. I mean, if you go back you know, pre-internet, you know, an artist had to come up with good songs and they had to be good performers. And that was kind of their main gig. And if you could get in front of the right people, you might get a shot at a recording career. But now in order to get a shot at a recording career, you have to do those things. Plus you have to, you know, be pretty good at marketing yourself and you have to build an audience before anyone will really look at you mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but you know, the first thing, if you tell an A&R guy about a band he's got to check out, the first thing he's going to do is Google it to see what's going on with them. And they could have dark side of the moon. <laughs> they could be, they could have music on that level. But if they don't have an audience, the, it's easy to go, well, I wonder why no one's into these guys. Must not be an audience for this now, you know? Hmm. So it's, it's, it's harder than ever, I think, for artists, I mean, kind of what's expected of them and for them to be expected to be kick-ass recording engineers on top of that is too much for some people, which is not to say that there aren't some artists out there who, you know, are amazing at the recording part of it. But uh, I think there will always be a place for producers. Do you try to prioritize as far as like, you know, if you hear about a record that, you know, say one, one of the guys in your roster is going to be good for but let's say that you know it's not going to be well promoted uh do you it, do you favor things that are going to be promoted over things that are not uh yeah and the 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 well promoted thing generally falls into the category of independent records um and i get approached by a lot of independent bands um and i'm i'm willing to talk to almost anyone about their project but it's a little overwhelming to to talk to an artist who is uh, where it's all potential. They haven't, they don't have a website yet. Sometimes they contact me before they've got 
a name for the band before they've got everyone in the band, but they start looking for a producer, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and the, they want me to take on faith that once, you know, they get a record done with one of my guys that all the other shit's going to fall into place. And usually if there's no evidence that they are putting those things in place, then I won't get involved. So that's, I mean, that's the only kind of not promoted kind of thing that we steer clear of, you know, but if there's an independent band that, you know, is clearly doing their, their work um, in terms of uh, website and social media and all that jazz. And they've got, you know, I mean, Honestly, I'd, I'd rather a band call me and say, because uh, usually I say, why do you want to make a record? And if a, a band says, you know, we're playing 200 dates next year, we need something to sell at shows. I'm in, you know, that's great. I love that. That's super clear. That's a really clear, realistic plan. But if someone says, yeah, we're going to make this record and then we're going to shop it. <laughs> like that, that's a, a much more abstract plan a lot of bands don't realize kind of what they're up against in terms of, uh, in terms of how hard it is to get the attention of record companies these days. And look, I was certainly guilty of believing in, you know, not understanding how the system worked when I was trying to be a rock star. So I can't really fault anyone else for that. And I look, and, and people who seem like they have their shit together at least a little bit, I'm happy to talk to them and kind of explain to them why I don't want to take their money. Why I think this is a bad idea. Why I don't want, one of my guys to invest time into a project that might turn out to be nothing other than Christmas gifts for his family. You know, I mean, uh, all of us want to invest time and effort into projects that have a hope of, of reaching a wider audience. I mean, even for a band signed to a record company, you know, the odds of it reaching a wider audience are uh, long at best. But if someone doesn't even have that going on, it's, it's even longer. And if someone hasn't shown any kind of, uh, understanding of what they need to do to kind of make things happen on their own if they're just relying on the idea that if i make great music i'm going to get signed then i'm happy to have a conversation with them explain why i don't think that's practical i mean but look all this is just my opinion i mean i i, I you know i could be wrong and, and maybe someone will write a song and totally change you know and in our person's mind, but that's not been my experience on the whole. Does your interaction with your clients extend beyond facilitating paperwork for contracts and, and advising on, well, yeah, maybe you should work with these guys. They're going to get promoted and this record could be really big. Do you ever get into financial and long-term advice with them? Uh, not so much. I mean, I'm not, not a business manager and I'm not that involved in their financial lives. A lot of my guys do have business managers. I think the, the only thing I do along those lines is I don't, I try to help people have realistic expectations about what to expect. I mean, I frequently get calls like saying, oh, this, that record went, you know, did really well. How much do you think we're going to get? And I, I'm really reluctant to suggest that someone's going to get a big royalty check. It's, you know, just let's wait and see. There's a lot of factors. I don't like anyone to count any chickens before they're hatched. But uh, aside from that, I tend not to, I'm not involved in their lives in that way. So the, uh, you know, just for the audience to differentiate, a business manager essentially handles the financial elements. Then. Right. I mean, different business managers get it, get in 
to different levels of this. It could be as basic as doing taxes, but it could, you know, but a lot of business managers, you know, pay bills for clients and, you know, look into insurance and anything, you know, financial will set up corporations or trusts or any of that stuff kind of set up 401ks or, you know, all that, all that stuff. Um, when you call yourself a manager, would you say you're uh, a career manager or? Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know the answer to that. I just, okay. <laughs> just manager. <laughs> I know it's yeah. sorry. I'm just trying to compartmentalize yeah, yeah, everything yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. So, um, you, you, in your interview with Rob, you asked whether he thought that people would be like independent artists would be turned away by him having a manager, whether they thought he was too expensive. And I just, I laughed when I heard that because the number of emails I get from independent artists who, you know, want guys with, you know, 20, 25 years experience to make a record for them for a hundred bucks, it, You'd be surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised. So most people are not shy about asking, you know, which is great. Um, again, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to, you know, baby bands uh, to, to try to bring them up to speed. Um, but that tends not to turn people away. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really super fascinating. I'm glad you reached out. I, like I said in my email to you, I, I've been plotting to try to get you on the show and then like you came to you came to my inbox, which was fantastic. So I, I appreciate it. I felt sorry for Rob having to field questions about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this this is this has really been informative. I think I think the audience is really gonna enjoy this. Um so great. Thank you right. so much. Yeah. Happy yeah. to happy to uh and again, all this is just my perspective on it. I'm sure other people have other views about how it works, but in my experience, this is, uh, this is the way it rolls. Well, thank you so much, Frank. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Be in touch. All right, man. You too. See Take ya. care. Well, there you have it. Mr. Frank McDonough here on the working class audio podcast. Fascinating to me because, you know, I've never had a conversation with someone who manages producers and engineers, and uh, that certainly helped clear up some myths and uh, bring some clarity to the topic. So I hope that worked out for you. We are out of time. I want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Of course, I want to thank our guest, Frank McDonough. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And I want to finally, of course, thank you. I appreciate the time you take to listen. As usual, Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.